0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and uh, we're coming into the practical side of our study here in the book of Galatians. Of course, we started off this series in chapter 5 with this particular text to communicate the theme of this book, Living Life in the Liberty of Christ. And so we're uh, really getting into where Paul has basically finished all of his arguments about why we are free from the law and about how our righteousness does not come from the law, but it comes through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished works, not ours, but his finished works. And so he's got kind of a summary here, an application slash summary where he's going to rehash some of the things he's talked about, but give really his first major imperative in the book. And then um, what we'll look at next week is what he recommends that they do with the false teachers. And then after that, it's all application. Here's how your freedom in Christ works. And so really looking forward to getting into those things. So Galatians chapter five. And once you found your place, if you'll stand in honor of God's word, we'll read our passage together in Galatians chapter five. And I want to start off in chapter 4, verse 31 that we finished up with last week just to help springboard, okay? Because Paul is going to tell us, this is who you are, now this is what you do with it, okay? So chapter 4, verse 31, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. His goal was not that you would remain in the scenario with Ishmael and Hagar bound in the bondage of the law. And the old covenant, but that you would be free with Sarah and Isaac and that you would uh, be free in Christ, free from the law, happy condition. And so now we get to chapter five and he says this stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. And so what we're looking at tonight is this, the true force of righteousness, the true force of righteousness. So may God bless you in his word. You can be seated and we'll consider our passage tonight. One of the never ending conquests for humanity or quests, maybe I should say it that way, is a utopian society. You ever heard that term thrown around a little bit? We want a utopian society. Well, the term utopia was first coined in the year 1567 by uh, by Sir Thomas More. This literal rendering here is, is from the Greek language and what it means, utopia is no place. U being no and topia being place. And so it's no place. Well, that, how, do we get, how do we get this idea of like a utopian society out of that? Well, what he was communicating was this. A utopian society is a place that is like no other. We have yet to find a place like this. What kind of place is he talking about? Um, a perfect society. A society where there's no oppression, a society where there's no violence, no selfishness, no pride, no oppressive politicians, no ruling government, equal wages and equity and all of those things. And so that is what the quest is for a utopian society. And this quest for utopian society is uh, the source of many of our social paradigms today in our society here uh, as regarding equal rights, civil rights, socialism, uh, climate change, and a host of other policies. And I'm just going to say this, that I, I truly believe that there are many, many well-meaning people that truly decide to, or, or desire to Im- implement these policies in order to make society better for everybody. I, I believe there are some that that's truly their desire. The problem is that the way they go about it hurts their agenda itself. I, I mean, if you think about it, it, it what the problem with, with how they go about it, it's one of the reasons why we don't have a utopian society. Violent protests, <laughs> rioting, standing out and picketing and harassing uh, Supreme Court justices' homes um, and and throwing... Uh, Petroleum bombs at buildings and breaking out glass and, and all of those things. Altering truth to fit a narrative. Well, that's not going to create a utopian society if people aren't able to have the truth and discern it. Um, the oppressive silencing of dissenting votes. That's part of the response as well. And so what we find is that in an effort to make things better, Too many times we can simply make things worse. And here's the reason why. Because none of the policies presented, and I'm just going to, I don't get into politics very often and I try not to do that on purpose, but I'm going to say on both sides of the aisle, the problem with the policies that we implement to try to create a better society is that none of them deal with the true source of the problem and that is the unrighteousness of man's nature, that we are sinful by nature. We are selfish by nature. Uh, We are proud by nature. And so we're talking about man's inability to be perfectly righteous all the time. Until man is perfectly righteous, there will be no utopian society, no matter what policies we try to implement. See, the reality is that even as Christians, We struggle to do what's right all the time, don't we? (laughs) We struggle to be as kind as we ought to be, as loving as we ought to be. Sometimes we tend to be neglectful. We can be selfish. We can be ambitious. We can be greedy. We can be uh, uh, gossipers. uh, We can uh, get angry and bitter towards people. And so we can struggle with things as well. There are Christian bosses who mistreat their employees, aren't there? There sure are. There are some Christians who still get drunk on the weekends, believe it or not. Although we may be saved, we still struggle to be righteous. So here's the question then. What's what's the solution here? Where do we get to the place where our lives are not dominated by sin? How do we get to the place where we are living daily in righteousness? Well, the Galatians were, if I can just put it this way, they were on a quest for a utopian life, in a very pagan culture, they truly desired to live righteously before God. It was their passion. It was their zeal. They've been delivered out of paganism and and the bondage of all the ritualistic religion and sacrifices and, and the things the performances that they would have to do in order to get closer to their God or in order to get to heaven. And so they were uh, strangled in this bondage, chained up and Christ came and set them free. And they loved Jesus and they loved the Apostle Paul who brought them the gospel. But they found themselves constantly struggling as they were bombarded by their uh, godless culture and their pagan past. They struggled to understand how do I overcome this temptation? How do I resist it? How do I uh, keep this sin and this paganism out of my life? Well, the Apostle Paul was gone by then. And so you had these Judaizers that came in and they said, well, you're struggling to live righteously. I can can show you how to live righteously. And they'd open the scrolls to the Old Testament law, to the Pentateuch. And they said, this is God's instruction manual for how you can be righteous with him. The law is where you find your righteousness. Well, Paul's been writing in this Letter to show them that God never intended the law to be the hope of our righteousness. It wasn't where we were supposed to look for righteousness. That, yes, the law served a point. It served a purpose of pointing us to the one who could make us righteous, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the point of the law. And so while they had Jesus Christ, while they had trusted him as their Savior, they were still struggling to live in this. Freedom that Christ had given them apart from the law and from their paganism. But Paul taught that really what the Judaizers were doing was while they had been brought out of this one form of bondage, the Judaizers were only serving to deliver them back into another form of bondage, a a Christian form of bondage, following dietary laws, following holy days, Uh, being circumcised, having to become a Jew. It was very nationalistic. And so they were just serving to put them into bondage again. But Paul has made it clear here through the course of chapter 4 that God designed that his children would be free, free from the curse of the law, that they would be free from the bondage of their paganism and their sin and their past life, but also that they would be free From the law as a means of righteousness. And so he's been writing to tell them that you are free. And so rather than going back to the law, you need to stand fast in the freedom that Christ has given you. Well, if the law is not the hope of our righteousness, as Paul calls it in this text, then what is? And why should we stand fast in the freedom that Christ has given us? That's what we want to consider tonight. Paul exhorts the Galatians to live their lives in the liberty of Jesus Christ. Having made the point thus far that the law, uh, from the law itself, that Christ has freed them from the law, Paul challenges the Galatians to stand fast in this freedom. Look at verse 1. He says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Notice it doesn't say there, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith we have received by the works of the law. Stand fast therefore in the liberty that we have gotten by ourselves. No, what it's saying here is that Christ is the one who has made you free. Your freedom has not been taken by force. Your freedom has not been paid for by your own righteous works. No, your freedom has been freely given by the grace of Jesus Christ. It's been granted to you. By grace, So since you did not earn righteousness in the first place, rather than uh, trying to uh, keep your righteousness or rather than trying to earn more righteousness by the works of the law, he tells them, stand fast in the freedom you've already been given. It's been given to you. So then he says, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What he's saying is that, that Christ freed you from the the yoke and if you think of a a yoke that was a a stock that would come around the neck of cows and it served like reins and that's how they would control them they'd put two of them together and they get them walking instead and controlling them that's the picture of of the yoke of bondage and what he's saying is that christ has freed you from the binding nature of moralism that whether you were jewish and you were trying to keep those dietary laws and the holy days and and all the the covenant and all the ins and outs of the law, if you were trying to keep those in order to get closer to God, if you were trying to keep those in order to be good enough, in order to be righteous enough, Christ has freed you from that. Or if you were a pagan and you were doing the same thing for a pagan God, crawling across glass, offering your children up as sacrifices, offering uh, meat unto idols and then eating the rest of it and and going through all these ritual laws of paganism. Either way, they were bondage. Why? Because you never knew if you were good enough. You never knew if you had done enough. And so you were constantly bound by the fear. Am I good enough? The fear of the anxiety. Have I done enough? Am I going to get to heaven? I really don't know. I won't find out until I get there. I don't know if I'm as close to God as I need to be. You were held in the bondage of that moralistic system. And he says, you've been freed by Christ. Don't go back and entangle yourself again. The word entangled, uh, it's a a word in particular that means um, to hold a grudge, to hold a grudge, or to bear ill will. And so what it's saying is, don't begrudgingly be forced back into this system. What he's doing is he's admitting there that moralistic religion is not the most exciting thing. That I gotta do this and I gotta do this and I gotta do this and I gotta do this in order to be right with God. I gotta do all these lists of rules and regulations if I wanna go to heaven, if I wanna stay right with God, if I wanna be acceptable in His sight. That's not the most exciting form of religion. And so what he's saying is don't be begrudgingly forced back into the pagan bondage or into the bondage of Judaism and keeping the law. And then what happens is Paul reiterates that why they should stand fast in their freedom from the law. The first reason is that the law diminishes the effect of righteousness that Christ is to have on your life. Look at verse number two. It says, Behold, look, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that, is circumcised and that that tense there would be is being circumcised this would be talking about those who are pondering it those who are considering it those who are on the verge of going back into Judaism and becoming a Jew and going into all those laws again he says he says for I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law now there's a play on words here that doesn't translate over into our English language. But if you look at verse 2, he says, Christ shall profit you nothing. And then verse 3, it says that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Now, the word translated profit is the Greek word ophelisi. The word translated debtor, all it does is change the pronunciation a little bit to So you have Ophelisi to Ophelites. So there's a play on words here that's going on. And the word profit there, it means to benefit, to be an advantage, or as it's translated here, to be of profit, to be of profit. Debtor is a word that means to be held under obligation. It's pretty easy to understand that, that you you have a debt that you owe. And so what he's doing here is, Is he saying that those of you who have already been circumcised and you're going back to the Old Testament law, Christ is of no profit to you. No profit. And if you're in the process right now of making this decision, let me remind you that you will be a debtor to do the whole law. Okay. what he's trying to communicate here is Christ has a profit for you. Not like a preaching proclamation, a money profit. Think money. He has a profit for you to make. And what you are doing by going back to the law is you are wiping out that profit by making yourself a debtor again. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm in the paint world. And so let's say you're opening a painting business. And so you decide, all right, I'm going to open my painting business. I'm going to call it Promark Painting. (laughs) And so you open that business and you go out and you do a little bit of marketing and you land your first job and that job is going to be uh, profiting you about $8,000 by the time you take the paint out, by the time you take the materials, the labor and everything, you're going to profit $8,000. Good job. Takes just a few days to do it. Well, then let's say you get that check and you go down to the paint store and you sign a financing agreement that has interest on it and you decide to go ahead and buy four or three four thousand dollars spray pumps totaling up to twelve thousand dollars well by going to the paint store and buying these sprayers you have wiped out your profit altogether that eight thousand dollars is gone and now you're going to struggle to make a profit because you've made yourself a debtor to the paint store because you owe this debt that you've got to pay off here's what the apostle paul is saying that when, when you get circumcised in order to bring yourself under the law, you are creating a debt in your life. You have to do the whole law. Right. And so that's verse 3. And as a result, here's what you're doing. You're wiping out your profit in verse 2. Christ shall profit you nothing. Now look at verse 3. Christ has become of no effect unto you. You know what that Phrase become no effect of none effect, it means this to wipe out. And so, you see what he's saying here that Christ has a prophet for you to have, but in your attempt to go back to the law, you have wiped out that prophet altogether. Right. Now, what is the prophet that Jesus is offering to us? Well, continue reading in verse 3. He says, Who's he talking to here? Whosoever of you. Are justified by the law, so who does he say he's explicitly talking to here? Well, it's those who say I'm declared righteous by the law. Whether we're talking about for salvation or if we're talking about a more righteousness or a greater righteousness or a greater acceptance with God, those who say I am justified by the law—they are talking about righteousness. And so, let's just put all this together here. The apostle Paul is telling them that Christ, when he suffered and died on the cross and you placed your faith and trust in him for salvation, he credited your account with his righteousness. That's the prophet. And he gave you an abundant prophet, a prophet that makes you and declares you righteous before God in heaven and a prophet that can make you righteous right here in this life today. And so Christ gave you this tremendous prophet. But when you go back into bondage, you eliminate the prophet. It it makes no more difference in your life. Why? Because you're trying to get your own righteousness. Here's really what he's saying. Christ can't help those who try to help themselves. That's what he's saying. Okay. And so uh, when that happens, look what happens at the end of verse four. Ye are fallen from grace you're falling from grace. Does this mean that they could lose their salvation? We talked a little bit about this on Sunday, about the, the falling away, um, and, and uh, or maybe that was a different message. Maybe that's the message for this Sunday. I'm trying to remember. Anyways, when, <laughs> when it comes to salvation, it's not that you can lose your salvation. A, a faith, listen, a faith that cannot keep you with Christ is a faith that never saved you in the first place. Because what the Bible teaches is that saving faith perseveres and stays close to Christ forever, okay? And so it's not talking about losing salvation. Here's here's what I believe the picture that he's painting is this. Christ wants you up here standing in the freedom from the law, standing in the righteousness that he has provided for you, standing in a place where you're not having to earn your own righteousness and try to work your way to heaven. No, you are standing fast In the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. But he said when you try to be circumcised and try to bring yourself under the law and you give yourself this debt and you wipe out the profit, here's actually what happens. In your attempt to elevate your righteousness, you've actually stepped down from righteousness. because you tell me whose righteousness is better? Christ's or yours? Well, obviously it's Christ's. And so when he says you're fallen from grace, that's, that's the idea is that you, tr- you thought you were elevating your righteousness by keeping the law, but he's saying, no, you've taken a step down and you've taken a step away from the righteousness that Christ gave you. And so he, he says you're fallen uh, from grace. Now, Paul's point is really this. You need to stand fast in your freedom from the law. Don't be entangled in the bondage of the law again. The righteousness you seek by the law only serves to diminish the righteousness you receive by faith in Christ. In other words, here's what Paul's getting across. The law is not the true force of righteousness in your life. It's not really what produces righteousness. It can't. The law produces sin. He's talked about that in this letter. It literally facilitates sin. Why? Because you have more rules to follow and you can't keep track of them all and you can't keep them all. And so all it does is it exacerbates your sin rather than helping you become righteous. Well, Paul's going to explain to us what the true hope of righteousness is. Look at verse five. For we through the spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. See, what he's telling us here is that the righteousness, the hope of righteousness is not attained by circumcision. It's not attained by becoming a Jew. It's not attained by dietary laws and by keeping holy days and all the Old Testament law. He says, no, the hope of righteousness is through the Spirit, through the Spirit. In other words, through the daily working of the Holy Spirit in your life, that is the hope of righteousness. What he's acknowledging by the word hope of righteousness there is this. We're not there yet. We're not perfect. We're not perfectly righteous. We're not completely glorified yet. We're not there yet, but he's saying this, that day's coming. We're waiting for it, waiting eagerly, anticipating it. What does that mean? Well, think about a young couple that's getting married. Uh, They're not there yet. They're not married there yet, but the ring's on the finger. They're getting married on Saturday. It's this week. It's coming up. They're not, they don't have cold feet. They're not doubting their love or their commitment to each other. They know without a doubt this marriage is going to happen and they're excited about it. That's what it means to wait for it. He says we wait for the hope of righteousness. Well, how is the hope of righteousness realized? By the works of the law? Is it realized by keeping all those rules and regulations given, whether in the Torah or the Talmud or the Mishnah Is that where it's found? No. What does he say at the end of verse number five? By faith. He says it is our faith in the operation of Jesus Christ through the power and working of the Holy Spirit. That is where the hope of righteousness is. And so this means that from the time that you are born again, from the time that you get saved, the Holy Spirit's work then is to sanctify you and make you righteous and make you more and more like Jesus Christ until the day that He appears and gives you that perfect, glorified body and has eliminated your sin nature. That's the only time we'll have a utopian society. Why? Because your sin will be finally and ultimately dealt with. You will be righteous. But you're not all the way there yet. Look at verse 6. For in Jesus Christ... Neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. What's he saying there? Well, again, circumcision would be the sign of the covenant. That's how you become part of the Jewish people. And as Paul said, that's how you become a debtor to do the whole law. And so what he's saying here is if you're a debtor to do the whole law and if you're a Jew or if you're not bound to the law and you're not a Jew, neither one of those puts you in a better position to be righteous. Neither one of them. They avail nothing. Here's that word avail. It means this. They have no power. They have no influence. They have no force in your life to make you righteous. Circumcision or uncircumcision. But look at what he says at the end of verse 6. But faith which worketh by love. That word worketh is the word we get our word "energize" from. He says that this faith is energized by love. So uh, let me just sum this up here. What Paul is teaching them is, is that there are three things that powerfully influence righteousness in your life. Number one is the daily working of the Holy Spirit to sanctify your life, to make you righteous. The Spirit's role is to sanctify you unto the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that progressively takes place on into the future when Christ returns, as we've mentioned. And so that's the first powerful influence. The second one is faith. How does faith function in righteousness? Well, that's been what the vast majority of this book is about, that your faith in Jesus Christ exchanges your sinfulness and your unrighteousness for the perfect sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ. What that means is if you're saved tonight, God looks at you and sees you as perfectly holy and righteous, spotless, blameless, as an innocent lamb. That's how he sees you. And so when you put your faith in Christ, you are given Christ's righteousness. And then the Holy Spirit goes to work in your life. And then the third thing is love. Love. See, love. Love's role is to motivate you to live, not for your flesh, not for your selfish ambitions, not for your selfish desires. Love motivates you to live your life for Christ and for others. These are three powerful influences of righteousness in your life. And so what Paul is telling them is don't look to the law for righteousness, whether past, present, or future. Start living by faith in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, by love for Christ and others. And so Paul is exhorting the Galatians here to stand fast in their freedom from the law because the true force of righteousness in their lives is the daily working of the Holy Spirit through love and faith. After the next few verses that we'll cover next week, Paul expresses his desire to remove the false teachers from their church. And then you're going to find that the rest of the book is applying faith, the spirit, and love to your life personally. And he shows how those three forces can make you righteous in a way the law never could. Love for Christ Will keep you faithful to him. Love will make you a servant rather than a lord. It says in verse thirteen, "For brethren, ye have not been called unto li- or you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Don't use your freedom in Christ to serve yourself. But what does he say? But by love serve one another. And so that means that love will keep a husband from treating his wife like she's a waitress." Love will, no, will keep a dad from treating his kids like they're slaves and second-class citizens. Love will get him off the couch to go play ball with them. Love will uh, lead him to take his wife out on a date. Love will keep a boss from treating his employees like they're doormats. Uh, love will keep a pastor from demanding more out of his congregation than he gives himself. It'll keep him from, uh, it'll keep him from being a tyrant to being a servant leader. Love will do that in a pastor's life. Love will keep church members from gossiping about one another. Why? Because I love them too much to air their dirty laundry to everybody else. Love will keep church members from biting and devouring one another. Look at verse 15. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed of one another. You know what he's saying? If you'll serve one another in love, then you're not going to have trouble biting and devouring each other. See, love is influencing righteousness. Righteousness. Walking in the spirit will keep them from indulging the lusts of their flesh, from going back into paganism, going back into the sexual sins that permeated their culture. It says in verse 16, "...this I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh." And then he says, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. You know, for a while I'd always looked at that and I was like, because our flesh is so strong, it fights our spirit and it punches our spirit back so the flesh can do the things that it wants. But what it's saying is this. Inside, you're a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. And what's going to happen is your flesh is going to rear up. And when you walk in the spirit, it's the spirit that beats your flesh into submission. It's the spirit that keeps you from doing the things that your sinful flesh wants to do. Things like in verse number 19, now the works of the flesh are manifest, are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. That's a word that means licentiousness. Remember, that's what they were worried about. Using their liberty from the law as a means to have a license to do whatever they want. And he said, No, you walk in the Spirit, it's not going to let you do that. He goes on and he says, Idolatry, here goes the paganism. Do you see this? He's saying, No, you walk in the Spirit, he's going to keep you from paganism. He's going to keep you from witchcraft, from hatred, variance, emulations, writhe, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, divisions in the church, factions. It's going to keep all of those works of the flesh out of there, including envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. (laughs) It means that the Holy Spirit, if you're walking in the Holy Spirit, He is sufficient to keep you from doing all those things that bound you before. You don't need the law. You've got something more powerful in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is sufficient to keep you from going back to your pagan past. And so faith, first of all, love and the Holy Spirit has the influential force to make you righteous that the law never had. So the application that Paul gives them is this. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free and be not entangled in the yoke of bondage. He says, don't go back to the law in search of a better righteousness with God because you can't get a better righteousness by the law. Rather, look by faith to the righteousness that the Holy Spirit can bring into your life and by faith walk in the Spirit. You know what that means? Every single day you need to fall on your knees before God and you need to acknowledge before Him, God, I know that today my flesh will want to have rule over my life. Sin will want to have rule over my life. I will want to give in to temptation time and time again. I will want to burst out in anger at times. I will want to get frustrated. I will want to think about what happened to me in my past and get bitter over it again. I'll be tempted to lie to make myself look better. I'll be tempted to be selfish and to try to get what I want out of other people and use people in that way. God, I know in me there's nothing, nothing good but Jesus Christ. Help me to walk in the Spirit, to let Him govern my life. And then when the Holy Spirit begins to prick your heart and says, you shouldn't say that, you shouldn't do that, you should bite your tongue here. You shouldn't treat your wife that way. You shouldn't talk to your kids like that. You shouldn't talk to that client like that. You shouldn't treat your employees like that. You shouldn't talk to your boss like that. See, the Holy Spirit has the power to do this in our lives. When you know you're not supposed to do something, and as soon as the words come out of your mouth, there's something like, oh, get back in. When the Holy Spirit speaks, we've got to respond and yield and let him live through us. Let the energizing force of righteousness be your love for Christ. Let it be your love for Him. Love Jesus walk with Him, spend time every day fellowshipping, communing with Him, reading the Word of God, praying, growing, getting involved in discipleship. I mean, give your love, give your fixation, give your obsessions over to Jesus Christ. The only time the Word of God recommends addiction is when He talked about Priscilla and Aquila and how they had addicted themselves to the ministry. You know what that means? They gave themselves to Christ. They did whatever they could to serve him, to love him. And you allow that love for Jesus to be an energizing force in your life that leads you to love others. You'll look for ways to serve others. Serve your wife. At least take the dishes to the sink. Save her a couple trips, right? Or even better yet, do the dishes for her you know she needs a day off every now and then as well uh, serve your kids now I'm the only one in here with kids in the home and so I already preached this to myself in the office today but those of you that have older kids hey take them out to dinner on occasion love on them care for them serve them help fix their cars <laughs> you know uh, you might have to go and and pick up your kid whose car's broken down on i25 at Two o'clock in the morning, they call you and get you out of bed. And boy, the last thing that I want to do is get out of bed and go help somebody with their car broken down. But it says, by love, serve one another. Serve them. If you live in the home with your parents, serve your parents. Wash their car. Take on some of the household chores. Sweep the floor, every them, At least vacuum your own room every now and then. <laughs> you know, just serve. When they ask you to do something, do it happily without sighing or rolling your eyes. Even as adults, sometimes we can do that. Serve your neighbors. I've got a godly Christian man right across the street from us. His name's Keith, and he serves the neighborhood. He's in his 60s, retired, and when it snows even two feet, he's out there shoveling like four or five different driveways without them ever asking. He's done mine a few times. I'm like, I've got a snowblower. Stop, you know, but he just wants to do it. Every every Thursday, I'm studying hardcore in my office, getting ready for this, and and I'll hear a noise, and I'll look out the window, and Keith is pulling my trash can and my recycle bin back up my driveway. You know, when you're serving your neighbors like that, it's hard to get in spats with them. It's hard to bite and devour one another. You know, that's true in a church as well. That if rather being fixated on what my ministry is, or what I want to do, or where I want to sit or the songs that I want to sing. If instead we just decide this, you know what, I'm going, to, I'm going to serve. Whoever comes in here, if somebody comes in and I see they don't have a Bible, I'm going to go grab a Bible and I'm going to take one to them. If somebody asks me to go get a tithing envelope for them, I'm going to go and get one for them. If somebody asks me if, they can, if I can help them out to their car, then let's go and help them out to their car. Hey, we ought to serve one another. And when you're serving people, When love for Jesus is energizing your faith and it's energizing the work of the Holy Spirit and it's energizing your love for others, that is a powerful influence of righteousness in your life. Something the law can never do. The Pharisees had the law, didn't they? And they used it to trample on people. That was their picture of a utopian society. And they were just as oppressive as anybody else. Let me just illustrate this this way, and then we'll be done. Um, So I've got here a screw and a screwdriver, and I've got a piece of hickory. It's pretty hard wood, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it is. Uh, When we were making these shelves with my dad a couple years ago, I think we burned out all his drill bits trying to make pocket holes in them. Well, a screwdriver is really handy. There's some things even on this pulpit that I could use a screwdriver for tighten things up hand tight Uh, but if I take this screwdriver and (laughs) say and I'm applying pressure. I've got a little little pinhole in it. It is not going to get in there. (laughs) It's not working. So what the screwdriver's done is told me it ain't good enough. I need something else. So I go to my tool chest and I get my impact driver gun. And I take that and, oh, the battery's dead. (laughs) I burned it out. Watch my fingers here. Let's try number two. See, it was working earlier. I tested it. I must have killed the battery trying to get it through this hickory. Bad illustration now. This is how it goes. <laughs> this thing is this is hard wood, isn't it? It is not. <laughs> what a failure. Okay. It's in. And if the battery was charged, it'd go all the way in. But I mean it's not it's in there. You know, let me just say it this way. What Paul's trying to get at is the law was like a screwdriver. The law had a purpose. The law was useful. The law was good. You'll see him talk about that in Romans. Is the law bad? By no means. The law is good. And so the law had a purpose, and its purpose was this, to show you it's not good enough. It's not going to drive it in. It's not going to give me the righteousness that I really need. What the law did is it showed you you needed something more powerful, something with more force, something with more influence. And what he's telling the Galatians is when you got saved, you had the power, you had the force, you had the influence, you had everything at your disposal that could get the job done, but you're setting it down rendering it of no use, no profit, and you're picking up something that couldn't even do it in the first place. And what he's calling them to do is to set the law aside and to pick up what's got the force. Faith, love, and the daily working of the Holy Spirit. And if you will allow those three things to influence you the most, they are plenty sufficient to get the job done. Faith makes you so righteous that when you stand before God, he sees you as Jesus Christ. That's pretty powerful. The Holy Spirit is so powerful that without the law, he can day by day sanctify you and make you righteous. Love is so powerful that you don't need a schoolmaster following you around, telling you how to treat people, telling you how to respect people. No, love is so powerful that you just do it without somebody telling you to. You just love people. You just serve people. So why would you be entangled again with the yoke of bondage when you could stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and so let me just ask you in your life what are you doing to find righteousness with God are you trying to work your way there trying to follow a list of rules and regulations that I'll keep all these spiritual tenets of Christianity and it'll somehow get me more righteousness and more favor with God are you considering going back to the law Are you considering going back to the bondage you were brought out of? Well, you don't have to. Christ has given you the freedom to not be compelled to go back into bondage. He's given you the freedom to stand fast. So don't take a step down and fall from grace when you already have all the power you need right here, right now to make you righteous, not just in heaven, but here. Stand fast. Live your life in the liberty of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the...